0: the following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Um It is a honor to be here with you guys. For those of you who may not know me, my name is John. I'm one of the elders here at Foundation Church. Um this morning we're going to pick up back in First John. Last week we were going over First John 2. This week will be at the end of 1 John chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 3. So let's pray and ask the Lord that he would help us open up the ears of our hearts to receive his word. Dear Father, we come before you as your children asking you, Father, to do in us that which we can't do and create in ourselves. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth that is in your word help us to believe and help us to Lord identify those areas that we need to grow in those areas that we need to uh, live for you so I pray God that you would work in us and through us to understand your word in Jesus name amen open up your Bibles to first John chapter 2 verse 3. 28 and we re- we're going to finish up chapter 2 and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 3 here. <clears throat> and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have been passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know... That no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He's given us. This is God's Word. Last week, um, in 1 John chapter 2, we covered um, a big stretch of Scripture. And it was basically John reassuring us of our salvation in Christ. You see, the docetists entered, uh, false teachers entered into the congregation and caused doubt to come upon the believers there. And many of them began to even doubt their own salvation. So John wrote this letter to reassure them of their faith. Last week, we went over the three marks of a true Christian, and that is that they obey the commands of Jesus They love the brethren, and they have overcome the evil one and their unity to Christ. John wants Christians to be confident of where they stand in the family of God. Again, the three marks of assurance are not the things that make us Christians, but instead they are evidences that we have been united to Jesus. They are flowing out of our union to Christ and our sonship with God. This morning, John will dive deeper on what it means For our lives to be transformed by our union with Christ. Our union with Jesus means that we have been born of God. This means that God is our father and Christ is our brother. This has a significant impact on the way we live our lives. The way we live our lives should now be completely and radically different. Once we were enemies of God and now we're children of God. And so John is not only concerned with the assurance of the inward reality that we have become children of God, but now he wants us to be also concerned with the visible manifestation of that reality in our lives. John wants us to exhibit the reality of our union and our righteousness, love, and confidence. Why? Again, not to make us Christians, but in order that Christ and his work would be exalted in our lives and in the world. Our righteousness, love, and confidence is unique because those attributes are now rooted in the gospel of Christ. John will root those three things in the gospel of Christ and in his work. In other words, we show the world that God is our father and Jesus is our brother through our gospel righteousness, gospel-rooted love, and gospel-rooted confidence. Why do we need to hear this? Because so often we can forget that the inward realities that we've been born again must be seen in our lives. Too often we can become comfortable in our Christian lives and routines, and we neglect to live the kind of life that Jesus has set us apart to live. A Christian teacher once said that the goal of gospel preaching and gospel counseling is that we should it should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. If that's the case, then last chapters, uh, John was seeking to comfort those who were disturbed by false teaching and lacking assurance in their faith. But this week, he's trying to prevent us from becoming too comfortable in our assurance of Christ. And he's Warning us of getting too comfortable. And so in this week, it is John saying that the course, uh, uh, that essentially last week he was saying, of course you are his son. You have your father's eyes. You, you look like him. This is evident. This, you are his son. And this week he's saying, now act like him. Act like a child of God. Act like Christ is your brother And so, He will show us the ways that we can live out this truth, again, in our gospel-rooted righteousness, our gospel-rooted love, and our gospel-rooted confidence. So, the main idea for our sermon this morning is that our union with Jesus and the Father will be made manifested in the way that we live our lives. It is expressed in our gospel-rooted righteousness, our gospel-rooted love, and our gospel-rooted confidence. First, we will start in our gospel-rooted righteousness. Christians are called to live righteous lives. We are called to live a righteous life because God is holy. He is a holy God. And in his will for sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins, the purpose of which it wasn't not only to wash us away of our sins and forgive us, but also so that we would be transformed, so that we would be set apart and made holy. So there are two unique qualities of our righteousness in the way that we live our lives in our text this morning. And that is our righteousness is a hopeful one. And the second quality is that our righteousness is a persevering one. First, we will start with our righteousness is anchored in hope. If we read in verse 28 here at the end of chapter 2, it says, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. So it is an expectant hope. Our righteousness is one anchored in hope. We live righteous lives because we know that Christ is coming back. And when Christ returns, we want to not be ashamed or shrink back, but instead we want to be confident when we see him. That should be motivation enough for us to live godly lives. How many of us would like to be confident when the Lord returns? I've heard Piper once Say that when he returns, oftentimes when he's seeking to live faithfully for the Lord, whether he's writing a book or loving on his wife, he'll have these godly, holy moments where he will in his heart say, come, Lord Jesus, come now. Our Christian lives, our lives throughout the day in our in and out with our wives, our children and all that good stuff should be marked by a life that is saying, come, Lord Jesus, come now. When Christ comes back, I pray that he would find us living in a righteous manner. Would he return and find us being patient with our children and loving our wives and saying no to temptation? Christians should live with an expectation that Christ could come back today. He could come back now. How would you live your life knowing if you woke up this morning that Christ was coming back today at 5 p.m.? How different and radical your life would be every day, knowing that Christ could come back at any minute. We do not know the day or the hour, brothers and sisters, but we do know that he can come back at any moment, and our lives should be one that is expecting the return of Christ. And what state will he find you? Will he find you striving for holiness and righteousness? May we live in such a manner that when he returns, we will not shrink back. Right? We've all been there as kids. Parents say, stay here, obey, I'll be right back. And some of us, me, took that opportunity to act up. Not not thinking about, hey, my dad could come back at any minute, but rather using that as an opportunity for lawlessness, as John would say. And they always come back at the least expectant time and catch you right in the middle of the act. So that's a warning for children here. Live godly lives. Uh, if you're left alone in the room, just know they can come back at any minute. May your parents not find you punching your little brother. <laughs> so we should also be hopeful, not only in his return, but also because we know that when he returns, the sins that most beset us will be removed from us, right? In verse 2, here in chapter 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. That is a hopeful expectation that Christ, when He returns, we will be made holy. This is a beautiful truth that when we meditate on, right, it can give us hope to persevere and kill sin. The fact that, Christ can come back at any minute, and that when he does appear, we will be made holy as he is. That all the mourning over your sins and failures will one day cease. This isn't something that lead us to be idle or continue in unrepentant sin. Rather, the Bible says that those who hope in this hope is purified by that hope. That is, the hope that Christ will return and, and make us holy is a hope that leads us to live righteously. This is the same kind of hope that Job had in the midst of his suffering. And we look at Job 19, verse 25 through 7. As Job is going through his suffering and the other people are accusing him of being a sinner. Job responds back in Job 19 and he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. This Hope that Job had that one day he will see his Redeemer anchored him to stay steadfast in righteousness despite the suffering and persecution that he was receiving. This hope motivated Job to be steadfast in righteousness and to not sin in the midst of his suffering. Job did not have the full revelation, brothers and sisters, that we do. He had but a shadow of what the Redeemer would be and what he would look like. But we have been blessed with the fact that we know Christ, we know the full revelation of who he is, and so that we have that messianic hope, and that hope should purify us. Our righteousness should not be anchored in uh, not only hope, but it should be a persevering one. And so when we look at this, righteousness should be a persevering one. What we see in our text this morning in verses 4 through 10 is that the gospel will transform us. We will be changed. Our righteousness should not only be anchored in hope, but should be a persevering one. That is that we should be marked by a continual repentance from sin and a progressive growth in holiness. Our righteousness should not be stagnated. It should not plateau. We're either growing in grace or declining in sin. Brothers and sisters, be growing in grace. Christians should not be marked by the same sin for the last 10, 15, 20 years. We have been given power and victory over our sin. One of the reasons that Jesus died was so that we would have victory over the power of sin. The believer in Christ has the capability to say no to sin. Prior to knowing Christ, you were enslaved to sin. You were in bondage to it. Sin said jump, you said how high. But Christ has granted us victory over sin. We no longer submit to the yoke of slavery of sin. We are now set free by a greater law, a greater law of Christ to love and to obey him. Here it says that no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. John is not saying that believers do not sin. He starts out his letter with saying, brothers and sisters, You have an advocate with the Father. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. So John is not saying that believers do not sin, but rather that believers will be marked by a continual victory over their sin. What John is saying here is that believers cannot make a practice of sinning. He actually says that to practice sin is lawlessness. And then he says that to be lawless is to be of the devil. He is saying those who abide in Jesus cannot make a practice of sinning because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Those works of Satan that had power over us before no longer has power over us now. Christians now live a life of righteousness because we have become righteous. How do we know whether we're righteous or lawless? A good way to know is do you love the commands of Christ? Are you eager to submit to them? Are you eager to obey Jesus? Do you see the commands of Christ as a blessing to you? Or do you see the commands of Christ as a burden? Or a chain to keep you back from the things that you really want to do? The things that you've deceived yourself into thinking that would make you really happy? That means Christians can now live a life marked by freedom. We now have freedom from strongholds and addictions and all those things that once oppressed us. We are free to now live a life of righteousness unto God. What sins do you find yourself returning to this morning? What sins do you see in your life that you have not been able to overcome? When Jesus and his ministry was healing a bunch of folk, there was a man by a pool And he had all these reasons why he couldn't get to the pool when it would stir up to be healed. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? It's one of the few times in scripture that we see Christ asking if someone actually wants to change. Someone actually wants to be healed. Christ is asking you this morning, those who are troubled by besetting sins, do you want to be free? And if so, get up, take up your bed and walk. Christ has now given you the power and the freedom to overcome sin and to be changed. So, first thing that John tells us to do, right, in the beginning of 1 John is confess it. Confess your sin to God. If you're struggling with besetting sins today, confess those sins to God. Make them known. We do this every Sunday when we gather together in the prayer of confession and assurance. We confess those sins to God, but make that a practice and a habit in your own life. Every morning, wake up, confess your sins to God. Every evening, before you go to bed, confess your sins to God. Christians ought to be confessing Christians, but also confess your sins to each other. Find trusted believers whom you know that you can open up about those weaknesses and those troubling areas and confess it to them. Right, And then turn from those sinful habits Ask the Lord to empower you by His grace to walk in righteousness and in freedom from sin, eagerly waiting the return of Christ. So, a Christian ought to live his life in a manner that is righteous. Secondly, Christians ought to display gospel-rooted love. The second thing that we are called to do as Christians is to love. Love one another glorifies Christ and demonstrates to the world that God is our Father. There are three things that John wants us to know about love in our text this morning. And that is number one, that love is commanded. Number two, love is sacrificial. And three, love is generous. Look at verses 11 through 18. The first thing is that love is commanded. Look at verse 11. It says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another first thing that we can know about love is that it is commanded by Jesus himself. John is recalling the command that Christ gave to his disciples and that is to love one another. This is a command from Jesus. This is not optional. When Christ gives a command, there are no Christian liberties around it that says maybe I can do this, maybe I can't. When Christ gives a command, it is a command. We ought to obey. We glorify Christ in obeying him and by living a life that, is expressed, that has expressed the love that Christ has shown us. The love of the Father expressed in the Son. Jesus did not only command us to love, he came and demonstrated how much he and the Father truly loves us. When we love one another, we glorify the one that came down and displayed that love towards us. The second thing that we see is that love is sacrificial, verses 12 through 16. The second thing that the Lord wants us to know about love is that love is sacrificial. Here he gives the example of Cain and Abel. Cain envied Abel because his offering was acceptable before God. In other words, Cain envied Abel's righteousness. And in that envy, he murdered his brother John gives this example to contrast between those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. He will say, this is the type of hatred the world has for you. It is a murderous kind of hatred. It hates us because of the righteousness that is expressed in our union with Christ. When is the last time that you've been persecuted for righteousness' sake? When has your holiness or your righteousness brought about backbiting? Brought about hatred towards you, an eye roll, mocking, ridicule? Brothers and sisters, it could be that we're not persecuted for righteousness' sake because when we are out in the world, there is no distinction between us and them. Are people often surprised or shocked? To hear that you're a Christian. When you make that known to others. Are they saying. Oh really? I didn't know you were one of those people. Brothers and sisters. Our lives. Should be completely different. Than the way the world lives their lives. We will be doing things. That they. Don't do. And we will not be doing things that they do. I'm not going to specify. On all the things in your life. That where that needs to be the case. But you know. And God knows. He knows the context in which you live in and work in, and raise children in. He knows your neighbors. He knows your family members. Our righteousness should be very evident, and when it is, there will be persecution. A world's hatred for us will be obvious when we walk in righteousness because Jesus warns his disciples that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The children of Satan also crucified Christ for his righteousness. If we are disciples of Christ, if we are followers of Christ, then we also will be persecuted him, be persecuted by them. And so John does the contrast that the children of Satan murder and hate. The children of God love and sacrifice. We are blessed to live in a country where hatred for Christians is not predominantly expressed in murder, But if we look in other parts of the world, that is not the case. Again, John is making a contrast with love and hate, murder and sacrifice. Those who call themselves Christians will have a kind of love that leaves no room in their heart for hate for other people, but instead will sacrifice for those who hate them. It does not take away life, but rather it lays it down. It does not hate, but instead loves is this not the example that Christ showed us? That instead of hating us, his enemies, and killing us all, he loved us. He loved his enemies and sacrificed himself for them. This is the kind of love that Christians ought to have. A love that is sacrificial. And often, we will express that love That's sacrificial love and generosity. Look at the third quality that we see in our text this morning in verses 17 through 18. It says, But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. One of the indicators that God is our father and Christ is our brother is that we do not hold on to the world's material possessions so tightly. We do not seek to acquire the world's goods at the expense of a brother and sister who is in need. The third quality we see about love is that love is generous. Here, John gives the imagery of closing our heart to someone in need, like you would maybe a door. Now imagine for a moment. A brother and sister here at Foundation is in need. They show up to your house. They knock on your door. And you tell them, and you see them, you say, hey, hey what's up? And they say, I can't pay my bill. I don't have money to pay my bill. My kid needs diapers. Now picture for a moment, and this is the imagery John wants to show us by closing our heart. Picture for a moment, you grab that door, you hear their need. And you slam it in their face. And you go about your day. Now I know for a fact that no one here in this church would do that. This church, I've had the privilege of witnessing uh, a desire to help those who are in need. But we can often do this in different ways. When we hear of someone who is in need and we just assume someone else will do it. That is a way of closing your heart out to someone in need. When you hear of a brother and sister's need and you put it off till later, you never get around to it. Brothers and sisters, we should not close our hearts to anybody in this room or any other brother and sister who is in need. One of the Christian ways that I've seen people do this is in Christian culture, is first they try to qualify whether this person is deserving of our need. We ask a million and one questions. Why can't he afford his diaper? Is he being a bad steward of his money and that's why he can't afford his bill? What should we do here in this situation? We try to see and judge whether this person is deserving of our need, of our help, of our aid. Brothers and sisters, do not hear me wrongly. There is a place for accountability. The Bible was very clear that those who want to eat need to work. And if someone is in a continual state of poverty as a result of sin, there should be accountability to be had. But brothers and sisters, if this is our first response to a brother and sister in need, and that is to judge whether this person deserves our help, then we are not in step with the gospel and in the way that John calls us to live our lives. The Lord wants us to be generous with each other. The Lord wants us to help those in need. Christians are called to live a life of generosity because God is a generous God. Look how God has been generous to you. We were naked in our sin and Christ robed us in his righteousness We were spiritually thirsty, and God gave us rivers of living water in Christ. We were blind and could not see, but yet God sent His Son. He emptied Himself of all the riches of glory and came down so that we could be filled, we could be robed, we could be helped. We are called to be generous because we worship a generous God who did not spare His own Son. We're also called to be generous because Jesus identifies Himself with the poor. Jesus, as He's speaking to His disciples, will tell them that when you give a cup of water, when you clothe the least of these, when you visit them in prison and you care for them, it is the same as if you're doing it for Him. And so, our love should be marked by gospel-rooted generosity. Our love should be one that gives to others who are in need. Thirdly, our lives as Christians should be marked by gospel-rooted confidence. The third way that we live a life that glorifies God as our father, and Jesus as our saving big brother, is in our gospel-rooted confidence. Jesus wants us to be confident in two things. We should be confident that our sins have been forgiven, and we should be confident in the provision of God and answered prayers. Look at verse 19 through 21. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. God wants us to have full confidence that we have been forgiven by Him. Now we all are well aware of how sin can strain a relationship. Right? For those of you who are super saints, you will have no idea what I'm talking about. But, we all know that when a bill collector calls you, and they, let, they, they, tell, them, they tell you who they are, uh, I'm probably just confessing my own sin here, but, <laughs> and they tell you the debt, and you remember what that debt is, and you know you don't have the money to pay at that moment, you hang up, right? <laughs> You're like, ah, I'll call you back when, when I got it. This is not the type of relationship that God wants us to have. As children right we know that when we pray the Lord's Prayer we say Father forgive us our debts forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us sin makes us feel like we owe a debt sin causes us to be indebted to God but here God wants us to know that we are forgiven And so our relationship with God should not be strained by sin when we confess it because we can have confidence that God has forgiven us. When we doubt the forgiveness of God, we will not walk in a confident fellowship with him. We will see God and see someone we owe something to, or we will see him as a boss. When we perform good, we're confident, but when we fail, we're we're in fear. This is not the relationship between a father and a child, a parent and a child, right? We want our children to know that on their best days, they are loved by us, that their sins of yesterday are not counted against them today. And we want them on their worst day to know that they are loved by us. And this is the type of relationship that the Father wants to have with us, a confident relationship, a fellowship with Him, that our sins are forgiven. But often this is a hard reality to walk in because our hearts will often contradict what God says about us. God will say, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. But our hearts will say, not that one. Not that one. Maybe you're hearing me today and your heart is saying, yeah, John, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it is how bad the addiction is, how bad the temptation is, you don't know. Maybe mothers here with mom guilt can resonate how hard and heavy that guilt can often be. Even Christian mothers who know the truths of the gospel will sometimes doubt the forgiveness that God has given them because of the guilt. They may say, you don't know all the ways that I've hurt my child. All the ways that I potentially have damaged them in the future. Husbands, you may say, it's bad, man. I really screwed up. Brothers and sisters, I may not know the depths of your shame and guilt, but God does. Here in our text, John says God knows everything. He knows the depths of your failures and depravity. He knows all the way your sins have hurt others and offended Him, and yet He forgives us. When we understand the truth of God's omniscient, that is, He knows everything, and His forgiveness, that He knows all and has forgiven all, then our hearts will no longer condemn us. And when that happens, we will have confidence before God. Look at verse 21. It says, Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is the type of confidence that God wants us to have, that we have been forgiven, that He knows everything, yet has forgiven everything. And with this kind of confidence, we can come before Him boldly before the throne of grace and pray. The Christian life should be marked with confident prayer. A confident prayer that God will answer us. That everything we ask. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus. Our confidence before God should lead us to prayer. And the confidence that all we ask of him, he will provide. This is the same confidence that John uh, in his gospel will say that Jesus talks about, right? In John 11:41 41 and 42 and John 14, he says that whatever we ask the Father, he will give. When we are confident that our sins are forgiven and we have a desire to live a life in step with his will, we can be confident he will give us Whatever we ask, because whatever we ask will be attuned to his will. This is a passage that false teachers often will capitalize on. And they will say, whatever we ask means that God will give me a Lamborghini, if I ask him. That God will give me a crazy sneaker closet. (laughs) That God will give me a huge platform. That God will give me prosperity, health, and wealth. This is why it is important for us to know what the will of God is. The focus that John has when he says that whatever we ask of God, he will give is around the will of God, not the worldly desires of man. Our desires should be centered around the will of God. This is why it is important that we know and we discern the will of God for our lives. We can know that by knowing his word. Look at Christ. Look at the manner in which he prays. Look at what he is asking for when he prays. Look at Paul's prayers when you read the epistles and the things that he asked for. Look at the Psalms, 150 chapters of prayer and songs that can inform us of the way that we ought to pray and reveal to us the will of God for our lives. Look at the purpose of their prayers. Our prayers and requests should be informed by Scripture because it is in the Scriptures that we can know the will of God for our lives. And in knowing the will of God, we can live in a manner that expresses our union with Him. And so, brothers and sisters, to wrap up, our lives as Christians should and will look different than the world. Our lives as Christians should demonstrate the visible Our lives should demonstrate visibly the invisible realities that we are now united to Jesus and have become children of God. Our lives will manifest a gospel-rooted righteousness, a gospel-rooted love, and a gospel-rooted confidence. Just three words of application before we end here. And it says here, the word of application this this morning, brothers and sisters, that Christians should live a life of righteousness. Pay attention to what you say yes to and what you say no to. Be willing to say no to anything that does not align with the will of God and be bold to say yes to obey the commands of our Lord despite any opposition and hate that you may get. Secondly, brothers and sisters, let us love one another faithfully. Let your marriages, parenting, Friendships be marked by love. Forgive those you need to forgive. Give to those in need. And finally, brothers and sisters, remember the gospel. Let that fuel your righteousness, love, and confidence. Despite their difficulty, this is how God wants us now to live. Not by our own strength, but by the grace that he has given us in the gospel. Remember that the blood of Jesus Not only washes you from sins, but frees you from its power so that you may live for him. Look to his righteousness applied to you. Look at his love made known to you in his sacrifice. Look to his confident hope that with the hope that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross for you. Let this be the anchor by which we live righteously for God. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you assure us that we are your children. And you've given us the privilege to live like it. With the hope, Lord, that one day, one day, God, we will be made like our big brother, Christ. We will be made holy, pure, He is pure. And so help us, God, empower us by your grace to live that kind of life, to live for you boldly in the world that hates you, despite any opposition that we may get. Help us to love one another, despite its difficulty, to practice Christian generosity and, and charitableness with one another. Father, help us to be confident where we stand before you and live in a confident way. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. was lost in the darkest night yet yeah, thought i knew